You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Paul told the Romans that the truth about the coming of the Lord is motivation to wake up and put on the armor of light, not to sit around passively and let culture go to hell. To do nothing is a misapplication and an inappropriate response to eschatology and biblical prophecy. As things get darker in culture, the church must shine all the more brightly in society. It's an opportunity to work, not an excuse. The church shouldn't change with the culture around it. It needs to remain steadfast in love and loyalty to Jesus and what is written in the Bible. Without the Bible, we have no gauge for right and wrong or how God wants us to live on this earth. It's an instruction manual, a written account of Jesus' life, and a historically accurate story of many leaders and cultures, and it contains prophecy about the future. As Pastor Danny points out today, we as a church need to wake up and point people to the light. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Revelation chapter 11 as he continues his message, A Witness for Christ in a Wicked World. You got Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, now Romans 6.23. What's that one? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. It's good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please understand, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. But there are other verses that will help us in people understanding the gospel. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Last verse in the Roman Roads Quartet. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which tells us you can't be a Christian incognito. You can't just say, well, I really, I believe in my heart. No. Are you willing to confess Jesus Christ publicly, publicly? So there's the Romans road. Hopefully that'll help you. Romans 3.23. Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. Those are great verses to be able to share with people in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I was in California for three days this past week at a pastor's conference, and one of the things they gave us at the pastor's conference was this 
little book by a guy named Ken Ham. Some of you know the name Ken Ham. He's a great Christian apologist, if you will. He's the guy behind the building of the Ark, which I'd like to visit there in Kentucky. But Ken Ham, they gave us this book. It was an easy read. Um, I read it. It's called Gospel Reset. And I thought it was very timely in light of this message. Gospel Reset. What the book does, the main point of the book is how culture in the Western world has changed and is continuing to change from North America to Europe to Australia. Let me just read you some of the great things in this book that helps us to understand the world that we're living in. The world is changing before our very eyes. Page 18. We are not imparting the gospel in a way the next generation can grasp. Of course, the message of the gospel hasn't changed, but the way people think has changed dramatically. Therefore, we must speak the truth of Scripture in the language of culture. He compares Acts chapter 2 with Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and shares the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved. Primarily a Jewish audience. And his point well taken, that Jewish audience had a biblical background and a biblical foundation and a biblical culture. Okay? They understood what sin was. When you talked about God, they thought the God of Israel for the most part. And he compares Acts 17 with Acts chapter 2. Acts 17 is where the Apostle Paul in Athens shares with a bunch of Epicurean philosophers and Stoics, the smartest, most intellectual people of the world in that day. And Paul, as he walks through Athens and sees all these idols, there's one idol, and it's an idol to an unknown God. And so Paul takes the opportunity, and as he stands before the people, I noticed you're very religious, all the idols. And I noted one that you have that you don't have a name for. And he starts and he says, I want to tell you about that unknown God. And he basically gives them a Bible history lesson. Why? Because they don't have a biblical background. They don't live in a biblical culture. They are Greeks. And Ken Ham makes a great point that what's happening in the Western world and many places in the world, we're being Greekized. Page 19. In Acts 2, Paul preached to Jews, while in Acts 17, Paul preached to Greeks. Their approaches were different based upon the worldviews of their audiences. The Jews in Acts 2 believed, thought, and viewed their world from a Jewish perspective. They already knew and understood what the Bible teaches about creation, sin, and other topics. However, the Greeks in Acts 17 did not have a foundational knowledge of biblical teachings on creation, sin, or other matters. We need to realize that. The world we live in has changed and continues to change. Page 21. Today, if you say the word God in the public schools, most students and teachers would respond, which God are you referring to? The Muslim God 
a Hindu God, the Buddhist concept of God, or a New Age God? Great point. Bear with me. How did all this happen? My next statements are not meant to be political in any way, shape, or form. I'm just trying to inform you. And if you get mad, get mad at Ken Ham. In 2010, Free Inquiry, a secular humanist magazine, stated, A historic transition is occurring. Barely noticed, slowly, quietly, imperceptibly, religion, when they say religion, they usually mean Christianity, is shriveling in America, as it already has in Europe, Canada, Australia, across the developed world. Increasingly, supernatural faith belongs to the third world. The first world is entering the long-predicted secular age where science and knowledge dominate. What they are saying is there's been a change in our Western world from an Acts 2 culture to an Acts 17 one. In his keynote speech, Obama talked about a new America. Here's what he said back at that time. Whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, and a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Next page. We are no longer a nation that believes in one God and builds our thinking in the Bible. That's what he wanted to let everybody know, that he was going to fundamentally transform the predominant worldview of our nation from a Christianized one to a secular one. Many of our founding fathers were Christian, and many of those who weren't Christian still respected the Bible. The predominant worldview that permeated America since its inception came from the Bible. And then he makes a point, and I highlight it, when there's no absolute authority to declare what is absolutely right and wrong, we end up like ancient Israel during the time of the judges. And what it says during that time is in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's the world that we're living in. And it's changing more and more to that secular mindset. What do we do? Well, I got a host of verses I don't have time to give you. But let me tell you what they basically say. Stand for truth. Stand for Jesus Christ. But do it understanding the difference in our world. It's not the same world as it was when I was a kid and Billy Graham was doing the Crusades. It's not the same world. Not the same America. I love what he says near the end of the book. Paul told the Romans that the truth about the coming of the Lord is motivation to wake up and put on the armor of light, not to sit around passively and let culture go to hell. To do nothing is a misapplication and an inappropriate response to eschatology and biblical prophecy. As things get darker in culture, the church must shine all the more brightly in society. It's an opportunity to work, not an excuse to wait. And then near the very end, I love this. What a great analogy. 
When the pioneers in America traveled westward, they didn't just place their wagons in a circle, throw out seed, and wait for the harvest. They had to prepare the ground before they could plant the seed. We're in a situation analogous to those pioneers where we can't assume there's plowed ground as there once was. We can't assume they will easily receive the seed leading to a spiritual harvest. Instead, we have to work at plowing the ground first so that we can plant the seed. We need to go out and degregize. Now, before I give you the idea with about 10 minutes left that everybody's got to go to Bible college and everybody's got to maybe go get a seminary training in order to be able to be a witness in our world, not what I believe at all. Matter of fact, I would encourage you to stay away from most seminaries because they're cemeteries in many ways. Here's what I'd like to give you in the last 10 minutes. No matter your IQ, no matter how much of the Bible you know, no no matter how smart you are, these are things that don't change in being a witness for Jesus Christ and Any Christian can be a witness because of these things I want to give you in 10 minutes. Number one, the potential of a love witness in the church. And I'm not going to preach at you. I'm a different man than I was three years ago. I'm a different pastor than I was three years ago. I'm a fellowship junkie now. A time three years ago, four years ago, people invited me to a meeting like I went to last night. I would not have wanted to go. I would not have wanted to go. You want to talk to me about your marriage problems? I I would not have wanted to talk to you. Probably still don't on that one, but, uh, (laughs) but I can tell you how to fix it. And you listen to the last 10 minutes. I can tell you how to, how to, just hang on. The potential of a love witness in the church, if we will really, really get involved in one another's lives and really begin to love on one another and fellowship with one another, the church will become the witness. Second, one thing that doesn't change no matter what culture, no matter who you're talking to, I don't care who it is you're talking to, God has given every single individual, Ecclesiastes 3.11, an inner knowledge that when they die, it is not the end. Every, every human soul has that. And so we do have something to share because, because people have an inner knowledge that, that there is eternity waiting for them. So the potential of love in the church. Secondly, an inner knowledge that everyone has of eternity. And third, because there's an inner knowledge that the Creator has given every soul, people fear I don't care who they are. When that train is coming and it's expecting to hit them, oh, God, you know, they cry out. Why? Because they fear death. Why in a fearful situation do they say, oh, my God? Just naturally. Because there's an inner sense the Creator's given them. They're headed for eternity. And it's not going to be good if they go there on their own merit. So, the potential of love in the church, 
an inner knowledge that every person has of eternity. Every person also has a fear of death. Number four, every other religion, every other belief, you can name them all. I mean, you just write them, all of them, every one of them, put them in a pot. The futility in every other religion and every other belief, the futility to get you where you really need to be and when you really want to be. Name me one that satisfies. That gets you to a point you go, finally, nirvana. None of them. Our message, the gospel message, our faith, it's the only faith, it's the only message. Because it's not based on what we do, it's based on what he did. That is the difference. It's a major difference. Romans 1.17, by faith from first to last. And Hebrews is full of scriptures that tells us that none of the Old Testament sacrifices, even the ones required by the Bible of the Old Testament, could cleanse the conscience of the worship. It's futility. Every other message is futile. We have the only message that will give peace to someone's soul and clarity to their conscience. Number five. The power of the gospel message. You see... I've been here too. Sometimes where you want to, you're sharing with somebody, and and and, and you and, and you depending on your wisdom. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's the power of the gospel. It's not how to intellectually you present it. You should present it as clearly as you can. But again, the gospel is not complicated. It is the message of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection, and that is the power. That message. A child can share it. You can share it. I can share it. And there's power in that message, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. And that leads me to my last one at 7.10 p.m. If it's really changed your life, if you really believe the gospel... There's number six and the most important one. Nobody can argue with that. The man born blind, Jesus healed him. Don't you love that story? The Pharisees questioned him. Tell us how he did it. I don't know how he did it. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. Pretty simple, isn't it? When they see your life, is your life really different? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were ignorant idiots. That's what the Greek is, ignorant idiots. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. The witness of a changed life. Here's what I wrote. I'm all for increasing our knowledge and with that knowledge, increasing our ability to talk about things like the fossil record which people like Ken Ham 
help us with. To be able to quote scriptures from memory in order to refute any knowledge that comes against the knowledge of the truth. To stand toe-to-toe with the atheists and wow them with wisdom from heaven. But with all that said, the greatest witness in this world is a transformed life. Another little book I got at the conference. Not at the conference. Actually, Paul Cowley left me this. He left me a manila envelope filled with these little booklets, and I read them on the plane. Boy, they're good. And I got three minutes to share this one with you. It's called The Sign of the Prophet Jonah. And the insight of T. Austin Sparks, who penned this many years ago, God gave him some deep revelation here. Deep, but very, very practical. And he takes what Jesus said. No sign will be given to a wicked and adulterous generation, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. As the prophet Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about the gospel. And the sign of Jonah is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he takes it further, and he doesn't do it in an unbiblical way at all. And he makes the point. How did that sign of Jonah, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how was it a witness to the very ones he spoke it to? Because they were unbelieving Pharisees. And when Jesus raised from the dead, he didn't appear to the unbelieving Pharisees. He appeared to those who had believed in him. And T. Austin Spark makes a great point that the witness of the prophet Jonah, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, was seen through the lives of Jesus' disciples. And they were the ones left as he goes back up to heaven. And he left everything to them. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. In one minute, I'll read you. From the middle of this little booklet. The Lord would have all his witnesses to be not just givers of objective evidence, but themselves personifications of the truth, a manifestation of the truth, an embodiment of the principle of life triumphant over spiritual death. Unless the powers of darkness and death feel and recognize the reality of his mighty victory over them, the mission of the church has broken down. And there is no substitute for that object and purpose of its existence. There must be a crucified and resurrected church to evidence the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And that's how you'll not only be a witness in the world, that's the beginning of the turnaround in your marriage. That's the beginning of the turnaround in the relational issues you're having with other people. That's the beginning of the turnaround of the lack of peace and the lack of joy and the lack of real life from heaven because you can't have his life until he has your and my death. 
We're so glad you tuned in today for Pastor Danny's message in the book of Revelation. If you missed any part of today's teaching or would like to explore more of the messages from this series, visit ccfstpete.church and click on Sermons. You'll be directed to our YouTube page, and we'd love for you to subscribe. When you do, you'll be notified by email every time we post a new message. We'd enjoy connecting with you on social media, too. Find The Living Word on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and jump into the conversations there. Find links to all of these at our website, ccfstpete.church. And if you happen to be in the St. Petersburg area, we want to meet you. Every message you hear on The Living Word comes from a teaching Pastor Danny has shared at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, and you're invited to join us for our weekly services. Our church is filled with imperfect people, being made holy by our perfect Creator, and we know that you'll fit right in. Join us on Saturday at 6 p.m. or Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. to worship God, read His Word, and get to know each other better. Find directions at our website. Again, that's ccfstpete.church. With that, our time with you has officially come to an end. There's much more to learn from the pages of Revelation, so we hope you'll tune in again, right here on The Living Word.